Welcome to School, a podcast featuring conversations on learning with my mom and my hajibasi. Please subscribe. Today, my mom speaks with Matt Hobbs, an awesome science teacher. They discuss the importance of keeping kids engaged, the sequence of teaching science, interesting books, podcasts, and museums, and the political landscape of science today. Links to all resources discussed today will be available in the show notes and on the website schoolconversations.com. Thanks so much for meeting with me today to discuss science education. Before we jump in, could you tell me a bit about yourself and your background in science? Yeah, absolutely. I am a career middle school science teacher. Both of my parents were teachers growing up. They taught at the high school that I went to in Central Virginia. My mom taught chemistry. My dad taught uh, history and government. In retrospect, no surprise that I ended up being a science and social studies teacher. In terms of my actual interest in science as opposed to teaching, it you know partially came from my mom talking to me about chemistry and chemicals and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know she was a high school chemistry teacher, so it's a little over my head for the majority of my young life. But just honestly, being out in nature was something that we did a lot as a kid. We always had what she called a Sunday adventure, and sometimes the Sunday adventure, you know, on on rainy nasty days, was to go to the art museum. But a lot of times it was let's go check out a park that is in the Richmond area that we've never been to, and you know, bring a change of clothes and go like barefoot, just kind of stomping around in a stream or looking for crayfish or, you know, drive for 30, 40 minutes to another park nearby and just go like hike around and see what we find. I spent a ton of my childhood after school time too, running around fighting imaginary armies of skeletons in the woods with sticks and stuff, you know, just happening upon stuff. So a, a ton of experiences. I was in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts and all that too. So a lot of experiences outdoors definitely got me interested in science. I should also say I struggled a lot and got in trouble a lot in school because it, I, I still do to this day, struggle with sitting still and sitting there while people are talking at me. Most of the classes I was in, I struggled a lot in, but with an ADHD uh, inattentive and or hyperactive personality type, you often don't fit in terribly well in most public education classrooms. Those kinds of minds, the you know neurodivergent minds, often being out in nature is perfect for for young people like that, as though you're actually built for it. You know, like I as a kid, I could always I could spend an hour like exploring under a, a rotten log but like sitting still in a math classroom made me feel like i was my soul was withering away and i was i wasn't gonna make it <laughs> you know so i say all that to say being out in nature many times was the place where i felt like i fit in and belonged and was endlessly fascinated way more than when i was in a in in school and like understanding and asking questions about the world about that world out there made it so that i had that sense of belonging and curiosity and all that out in the natural world to the extent that 
I eventually kind of was able to tap into that curiosity and interest in a classroom, in a biology classroom. That kind of sort of came for me in sixth grade, which is ironic because that's what I teach now. I got in trouble in every class except for my sixth grade science class. Uh, the guy was like funny and sarcastic and very odd as teachers go. You know, he like made fun of the captain of the cheerleading team, which I thought was awesome. He was equal parts stand-up comedian and Steve Irwin crocodile hunter. Quite a few of our class periods in that class were spent traipsing around in the wetlands out behind my middle school. Nice. And he'd just like go pick up a snake and like, hey, look at this. Oh, it bit me. Oh, how about that? You know, getting out and getting our hands on stuff really made an impression on me. After that experience, I was like, all right, I'm a, I'm a science student. That's cool. All right, I, I can do this. And then I got into ninth grade biology class and my teacher just like had us copy notes off the overhead projector the whole time. And I got really close to failing. Now as a teacher trying to really hold a place in my heart for what it felt like to be a student in that really boringly taught class. Yeah, that that's interesting. Well, so first of all, the last episode last month was on outdoor education, and I interviewed an outdoor education specialist, and we discussed a lot of the data on being outdoors and how there's really solid research on how the symptoms of what we call ADHD and hyperactivity, how a lot of those symptoms are actually either reduced or poof, disappear when kids spend time in nature. So I love yeah. that you I love that you mentioned that because it's it's huge. It's easy to dismiss and overlook. And it's it's not an easy thing because, you know, schools are indoors all day, every day. And it's there's very minimal time outdoors. But it is something to think about. And so I'm glad you brought that up. You just reminded me, especially in light of the kinds of things that I just heard on Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast, talking about exposure to bright light at various times of the day and the powerful, almost universal impact of circadian rhythm on all different body systems and alertness and all that stuff, Be, by virtue of being inside all the time, we're really actually disconnected biologically and dysfunctional. And to be honest, that's kind of what I felt like trying to sit still in a, in a classroom. Is it just the Andrew Huberman podcast? Uh, it's called Huberman Lab. He's a neurobiologist and ophthalmology professor at Stanford. He's a good follow on social media too. He does shorter versions where he does like scientific illustrations and diagrams. As you were saying, I was thinking of Brett Weinstein, the evolutionary yes. biologist, and his wife do one. That's a good one. The uh, Dark Horse podcast. I'll link mm -hmm. to that as well. You, I know you listen to that as well. I highly recommend Dark Horse podcast. If you think of anything else, let me know. Yeah, we'll do. Okay, so you mentioned that science teacher who was really funny and got you guys engaged and had you, you know, working with your hands, getting outdoors. And then you contrasted that with the science teacher later who had you just copy notes from the board. And obviously that made a significant difference in the level of passion that you felt towards the subject. You know, as a teacher, as a longtime teacher, I want to ask you, what do you think causes that spark in children? And how can we make them go from uninterested to passionate about learning short of, you know, taking them to the creek behind the school every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that needs to be balanced. I am a huge fan of a book written by a George Mason University professor named James Treffel. He wrote a book in 2008 called Why Science. It was highly influential on me as a young teacher insofar as Treffel did a lot of work 
throughout, I believe, the 80s and 90s with another scholar from the University of Virginia whose uh, work was primarily on cultural literacy. So Treffel kind of expanded on that to the idea of how scientifically literate are we as a, as a populace, as a nation, compared to previous generations. So he explores that idea of scientific literacy and all the different kind of cascading effects that come from a scientifically literate populace. Consequently, I, I'm going to come back to him in a second, but uh, another huge influence on the scientific literacy thread in my life was obviously Carl Sagan, who I think is the closest science has to a patron saint. His, uh, uh, what is it called? The Varieties of Scientific Experience is a really good collection of uh, Sagan's essays, uh, not essays, um, uh, speeches. But uh, so there, you know, the, the general idea being a citizenry that understands the big ideas of science is not only more likely to be, uh, to innovate, but is also less likely to be swayed by callous, shallow, emotional pulling of people's heartstrings without looking critically at objective information and, and the quality of information that's being presented, all that kind of thing. We're a more robust nation, for example. We're a more robust people. From an early age, if we know what are the big ideas of science as the consensus generally uh, constructs it now, you know, and that means so much more than just what I see a lot of science teachers doing, which is, you know, hi, welcome to fifth grade science. Let's go over the steps of the scientific method and then do a science fair project, the standard, like the cheesy sitcom example of the vinegar and baking soda uh, volcano. Like, what, what did you learn by doing that? Nothing. So back to Treffel, the idea of scientific literacy, in my mind, as I was starting as a young teacher, felt so important to me. That book by James Treffel, I think, did an excellent job at laying out what would a populace that understands the big ideas, if maybe not all the details, but the big ideas of how does our universe function and what's our place in it. He does an excellent job of laying out those big ideas kind of in order uh, from the foundational laws of the universe, building up to interlocking systems. You know, essentially he spells out what is a functional way to learn your way through all the different disciplines of science so that you would get the main points of all of them, which is the thing I, I curriculum ideas list that I shared with you a little while back. Right. Yeah. I want to get to that. So our homeschooling strategy has honestly felt like an attempt at crowdsourcing their education. And we really benefited from the experts in our community who are like yourself, passionate about a particular field, you know, be it sewing, history, math, whatever. Science though has been one of those tougher areas for many reasons. So my need for guidance on science education came up one night over dinner with you and Anna. And a few days later, you sent me this email with a ton of great suggestions. And I was so grateful for this thoughtful list. And I have to ask you, is it okay for me to share it with other friends and parents who might benefit? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm, essentially, it's just like uh, that list is organized by the big ideas that Treffel puts in his book about what should everybody know about science. And then 
I found things that I've used to teach those ideas over the years that I love and uh, I were absolutely invaluable to me as a teacher. It felt pretty thorough, but not at all overwhelming, which was a pleasant surprise for me. So you want to tell me a little bit more about the list? Is there, I mean, you don't have to obviously cover everything, but why do you think that those topics that you included will cover all the bases in, in terms of those foundational elements of science education? Yeah, so um, without going into each one of them, the idea is in, uh, in Treffel's book, Why Science, he lays out 18 big ideas that encompass, as of the early 21st century, what are the big things we understand about how the universe and life within it works. It starts with physics and math and works its way up through astronomy. You know, it starts with things like the universe is regular and predictable. Next ideas are things like the, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. And the, the second law of thermodynamics being the law of entropy. After this many years of teaching science, it's really tempting for me to say those are the kinds of things that students should learn first because it gives them a really good foundational idea. It's tough to understand butterfly metamorphosis, for example, if you don't understand what cells are and underneath that, if you don't understand what molecules and atoms are and where those come from and why do they always behave the way they do and that kind of thing. But I get again that elementary age kids are not exactly ready for super deep studies of, of uh, entropy and astrophysics and all that kind of stuff. So seeing a list like this has shed more light on why the majority of science curricula spiral. You know, they, they start with things that kids can, that young kids can understand and start with the observable and start teaching about like, oh, you know, the life cycle of a butterfly and let's go outside and notice the clouds and we learn about what clouds are and that kind of stuff. And then you come back to it in middle school and you come back to it in science with adding layers of complexity each time. But before you can really understand deeply, before kids are like, I would say, ready for college or are ready to be called generally scientifically literate, they will need to understand things like the, the, the laws of physics that underpin astronomy and chemistry. And in order to really understand biology before they are adults, they will need to know, they'll need to understand the, at least the basics of chemistry, maybe not, you know, memorize the periodic table or whatever. So it, it, it does stack like that. Science does kind of stack on the disciplines stack pretty well with physics and math being the underlying architecture, then physics, then kind of astronomy and chemistry and, uh, geology as you get a little more local on earth and then the interaction between geology and chemistry and how that may have led to the origins of life and then you get the idea. So that was actually my next question was that of the subfields within science is there a chronological order and it seems like so from what you said it's physics is first I wouldn't have expected that. I know. <laughs> right? I know. No, I know. Well, it's if you think about it like information architecture Let's say your, your middle school age child has a question about how come birds can fly, but I can't. What's up with that? There are levels of complexity you could get into with that. If a, if a five-year-old or four-year-old asks the question, 
you give them a, a much more surface answer than you would to a 14 year old than you would to a 19 year old. In order to really deeply answer that question, you need to keep going deeper and deeper in the levels of analysis to get down to the idea of birds have hollow bones, which gives them lesser density, which means their muscle strength is able to lift them off. And you, like you start getting into physics. So physics and math are underneath all the other scientific disciplines. So I don't think I would start with physics. I would start introducing ideas of physics and play with physics with young kids. They don't realize they're learning physics, but they're playing with it. You know, the idea of like on a hot summer day, you're driving down the road and you put your arm out and the way you angle your hand works like an airplane wing and it, it like launches your hand, your arm up in the air, right? That's playing with physics as a, as a kid or home activities like take a hairdryer and point it up in the air and put a ping pong ball in the stream and it floats. Wow, look at that. That's so cool. That's playing with physics as a kid. If you understand Bernoulli's principle and all these other things, if you're super fascinated by that and really on fire about those kinds of experiments and, and activities as a kid, maybe you end up, you know, going down the aerospace engineering path or something. But I, I would start with play. For instance, I don't know if they still have this. They probably do. But if uh, anybody who, who's listening to this has younger kids, the Baltimore Museum of Science has the best interactive physics-related exhibit that I've ever seen. Really? The Baltimore Museum of Science? Okay, we've been wanting to go. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. It was, as an adult, it was so much fun. It's not just a go and watch somebody do something that's cool or see some amazing thing. There's a lot of play involved there, demonstrating kind of fundamental laws of physics. Like a little kid can go on the long end of a seesaw and you can change where the fulcrum point is in the middle of this long beam. A little kid can stand on one end and if they have a long lever on their end, they can lift their dad up who weighs like eight times more than they do. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Like by playing with the leverage point. Right, right. They, they get to all of a sudden, oh my gosh, look at me, I'm so strong. That reminds me of something we did at the Air and Space Museum. They had a little lab. I think it was the Air and Space Museum. Was it? Yeah. I can't remember if it was the Udvar Hazy in Virginia or the one in D.C. Either way, those two are also great places to visit. I love this idea of playing with physics. I discovered an interest in physics through my love of nature and outdoors and biology. As I started teaching it, I realized, okay, like if kids have fundamental questions, you know how kids do that thing where you explain one thing to them and they follow up with why, and you explain that and they follow up with why, and they've, you know, again and again and again, it's this recursive cycle going back, back, back. Eventually you get to, well, here's physics. So I ended up, I wanted to understand, but as an adult, but also because I needed to, to help my students understand, I ended up kind of getting back into physics myself. But I, I would also say popular ways to play with physics and chemistry are things like things like soap bubble physics. You can do all kinds of different like shapes of bubbles and watch and study those because it gets you into things like fluid dynamics and density. I mean, even if you have a way of like capturing slow motion video, you can even look at like, wow, look at all the light and light and light refraction is another really fun one to play around with with kids and study. 
like chemistry and cooking is another fun one um, that has good connections to human biology. I mean, you're you're like the walking, talking example of like studying, <laughs> like <laughs> how do the chemicals we put in our bodies affect what how we feel and how we think and how we show up in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, you you start introducing ideas through play with younger kids. There, there's a reason why you start doing some biology and some chemistry and some geology in elementary school age curricula. A lot, most schools do that. And then you cycle back to it and teach the same topics again when they're around middle school age because their brains have developed to the point where they can see the same topic but be ready for so much more now. Right. In homeschool situation, you have so much more freedom to go where the kids' interests lie. Something that, you know, whatever clicks for them, you can go super as deep as the kid can take, as right. deep as they can possibly grasp. You know, you don't necessarily have to make sure they're experts at all aspects of science. They could just become like a, you know, like your kids are becoming experts at, at <laughs> cooking and biochemistry. <laughs> in the family. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, you speak to, you know, the, the worry that I had about avoiding gaps in their knowledge when it comes to science. And it seems to be for me in science only. And if they don't read every piece of literature, somehow it doesn't seem to worry me that they'll have gaps in that area of study. But you had some wise, wise words for me on this before. How can I avoid all the gaps in, in the science field? And you said, well, you can't. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I, I, I kind of was thinking about that. And even though it's, it's, it's a little switching topic here, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking one of my favorite general modus operandi as a teacher, what I think has been a really good lever for me for teaching about the scientific process. Doing scientific experiments is, is cool and great. And you know, having kids like play around with variables and, and see what happens. That's, that's a really valuable thing to do. But I also am a big fan of learning about and teaching about the history of revolutions in scientific understanding. Love that. One of the classes that I teach at my current school is a, a literacy intervention class. It's a, a literacy extension class for, for kids that are advanced readers. I was told initially, you can pick whatever kind of subject matter you want to have kids read and write about. This was before the pandemic. Wouldn't it be fascinating to learn about the history of medicine and diseases? That topic has just kind of always endlessly fascinated me. I found this really great book that's been highly successful for my middle school audience uh, every, every time I've worked on it with kids. It's called When Plague Strikes by James Cross Giblin. Um, so middle school, uh, parents of middle school age kids out there um, or upper elementary age who are advanced readers, it's an excellent book. It's, it's got some really just appropriately disturbing things in there. The book breaks into thirds. The first part is about the Black Death in the 1300s. The middle section is about smallpox. And the last section of the book is about the AIDS epidemic pandemic. It was written back in the 90s, so some of the AIDS stuff is a little outdated. It's one of my favorite books to 
read with kids and discuss with kids and have them grapple with because it's equal parts science and epidemiology, human biology. It's equal parts that with the history of religion and sociology and psychology. It walks through how do the, the predominant belief structures in an era affect how people respond to, to unknown threats. I, I just like lights me up every time I'm, I, I use this in a class. The history of medicine and diseases is a really great way to document how has our understanding of the world changed and what are the huge discoveries that just were complete paradigm shifts. The discovery of bacteria by Anton van Leeuwenhoek in the 1500s completely changed the entire trajectory of human history and might have been the discovery that saved the most lives in all of human history, for example. But there's lots of other controversial changes in human history that are really fun to talk about with kids. The idea, like Louis Pasteur is another really fascinating one, essentially how he debunked the idea of spontaneous generation. People used to think things like foods would go bad because the spoiling agents would just spring forth from that thing. But through his experiments, he proved that no, it was just a, it was an outside influence on it. And then what is that outside influence? Oh, great. Okay. Then he comes up with the process of pasteurization to kill off all the outside infectious agents, the pathogens. So like little stuff like that shows, uh, at least in my experience, it highlights for, for us adults and for kids, there is a really fascinating connection between People in the past weren't dumb. They just didn't know yet. And after you see a few of those historical examples of things that people thought that seem silly and quaint to us now, and the process of how we got to live our lives like we do now, took a lot of controversy. Persecution of uh, Copernicus and Galileo, like what's, what was that whole situation about? When you were describing the book, it reminded me of Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. That one Love also it. won, I'm sure you're familiar. I think it won some prize for best science book. It just made me think of other books to suggest for parents looking for resources. The Joy Hakim books on... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always meant to read that one. I never got around to it. The Joy Hakim one? Yeah. Yeah, I can't find it now, but I'll find it and I'll link to it. I know that she has some stuff on history that's really great. I think it's like the history of the U.S. is one of them we have, but then there's some stuff on science specifically that she has. When you were talking about the shifts in scientific understanding, it made me think of the PBS documentaries we've watched. PBS has put out amazing content these past few years, and our kids have watched so many of the documentaries, not really understanding a lot of the underlying core concepts. Like you were saying, like they might not really know what a molecule in a cell is, and that would be so essential to them understanding some of these bigger topics that were discussed, but they really really enjoyed and really learned a lot. There was one about the history of inoculations and vaccinations, and that was really fascinating. Yeah. There was one on polio, the polio outbreak. And the by the way, I'm sorry, so sorry to interrupt. Another book that I use in my history of medicine and diseases uh, is a book called Small Steps by Peg Carrot, K-E-H-R-E-T. It's a, a memoir of a, I think when she was, 12, she, uh, the, the, the year that she caught polio and her struggle with it, that is a perennial favorite among my classes. They absolutely love it. And it, it doesn't get that much into the science, but it gets into 
the human side of the societal fallout and what it means for a person to be all of a sudden, you know, taken out by a disease and how all that kind of stuff. I, I'm totally in agreement. I, I think as a young teacher, I would have been maybe so lost. I feel like I would have been fired if it hadn't been for things like PBS science documentaries. They really got me through a bunch of tough times as an early young teacher. Yeah, they, they've been great. I'll go ahead and find some of the titles and, and link to those. I want to be mindful of your time. There's one more question I wanted to ask. Do you have time for it? Sure. Yeah. You know, and I don't even know if I should go there. It'll be controversial, but here goes. I'll send you the clip that I'm referring to, and I'll link to it as well. Uh, it was a panel of 14 experts, including, you know, virologists, scientists, researchers, people from all different backgrounds. They were all discussing issues related to COVID-19, and it was an independently produced piece, something we would never see in the mainstream media. And there was a vigorous scientific debate amongst them. And each of them brought a unique perspective to the panel. And it was so refreshing to see this. And I feel like we can't really have scientific progress if we don't understand opposing scientific views. You know, mm -hmm. we can't really say the science is settled when it's not close to being settled and when there are scientists debating and scientists having different hypotheses that are not yet tested. So, as you know, I'm very distraught about the politicization of science today. And I wanted to get your take on this. Again, I want to be mindful of your time. What do you think has happened to the landscape of the science world where scientists now are not allowed to have this vigorous scientific debate that is so necessary for progress? Yeah, this is a tricky one. I am also really bothered by politicization of so much at universities. Yes. You know, a lot of scientific research comes out of university labs and Sorry to interrupt. Coddling of the American Minds and others. It's not a science book, but it's... No, I know. I, lo I love it. Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, The Righteous Mind, was, was one of my favorite books I've ever read. One of the most impressive achievements of social science I've ever read. But yeah, I agree. I, the, the idea that people now need to be actively encouraged or even now allowed to have conversations with people who vigorously disagree with each other. It seems so strange to me that we've gone in a, in a direction where we don't really have substantive debates with people who we disagree with the issues on without it devolving into somebody gets canceled and fired and whatever. You know, I've, I've thought of myself as a very progressive person my whole life, but I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable on the team that I've always thought I was on because a lot of people on the very progressive end of the spectrum have become very illiberal these days, very uncomfortable with free speech, very uncomfortable with actual tolerance because it's in service of trying to encourage our society to be more you know, it's like shutting down conversation to in, in service of trying to be open and welcoming and accepting. And so nobody ever gets their feelings hurt. The end result of that is now what we're seeing where like people who m might have potential ideas about something that could be saving lives due to COVID aren't allowed to say it because, you know, that'll just stir up trouble and 
potentially lead more people to go down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, mainstream media outlets are not discussing the VAERS data, which as of August 6th, the VAERS data released by the CDC showed that a total of 545,338 reports of adverse events from all age groups following COVID vaccines, including 12,366 deaths and 70,105 serious injuries between the dates of December 14, 2020 and July 30th. 2021. And, you know, there are some experts I've heard who have actually said that this VAERS data is just the tip of the iceberg because many, many, many Americans don't even know VAERS exists. But I don't understand why there are scientists who look at this data and are not alarmed. I can't understand that. I struggle with what I guess everybody's struggling with now, which is how do you assess the validity of a source of information? And how do you tell a heterodox or unorthodox thinker who's the kind of creative people that we need to help us solve problems and think, look at it totally differently than everybody else? But that's a, that's a really fine line, slippery slope, double-edged sword, whatever you want to call it, because you know there's also really smart people who have ideas that lead other people to do things that are dangerous and dumb. Conspiracy theories based on pseudoscience that has a lot of what looks like convincing evidence behind it. We're in a real time of transition in our society. It would be nice to be able to say, oh, you know, even uh, just anything that's published in a major peer reviewed journal, that's a reliable thing. And that's what we should use as our gold standard for information accuracy and, you know, that kind of thing. But there's been some real nonsense that's slipped through in some major scientific journals, which is why it's a little depressing, but I'm a huge fan of the academic hoax team of uh, researchers, you know, the ones who snuck through the uh, hoax papers on like rape at the dog park and all that kind of stuff. And they were praised and won awards for their totally fake academic papers. I find that really interesting stress testing of our validity system in this, in this society. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where this is going, but I, I am with you that if we can't totally be sure whose information is valid and there seem to be some big holes in official narratives that need more investigating, then I agree. I don't see a whole lot of harm in having the kinds of expert discussions and debates. You know, we need to have lots of conversations around these issues to figure out how do we best collect evidence to have substantive supported evidence-based conversation. Yeah, it's tough. It's really difficult to help our kids navigate too, right? Because it's one thing to be frustrated. It's another thing to to help our kids navigate this landscape. So anyway, yeah. thank you so much for your time and your suggestions and for your willingness to have this conversation with me today. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Links to all resources discussed today will be available in the show notes and on the website schoolconversations.com. And don't forget to subscribe!